Welcome to the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is Tiffany Agard, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief at The Review. This podcast will explore a variety of policy issues through interviews with figures from around the world. The next few episodes have been adapted from a live speaker series conducted during the 2020 to 2021 academic year. This will be our final episode of this series. Once more, you'll hear from our senior editor, Cosmos Museum, as we sit down with Nadia Dar, head of Oxfam in Washington, DC, for an insightful talk on human rights, inequality, and policy in the COVID and post-COVID era. Thank you so much for joining us. Inequality during this time. So, thank you, Tiffany. So, today we will be discussing inequality, human rights, and public policy in in the post-COVID era. Our speaker is no less a person, but the director of Oxfam here in Washington D.C., Nadia Dar. Nadia is also uh, an engaged practitioner in the field. She leads the DC team of Oxfam, uh, working on several issues, including inequality, public services, climate change, civic space, accountability, coordinating across the Oxfam Confederation to influence international financial institution policy and practice. Nadia has has guest lectured on IFI trends at several universities across the United States. She's a frequent commentator in major news outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, and The Financial Times. Before joining Oxfam in 2015, Nadia spent seven years at the Bank Information Center, that's a full career, seven years, where she managed the Yemen program and held several positions within the Middle East and North Africa team, promoting transparency and participation of civil society in World Bank operations. She has been an organizer and board member of multiple social justice organizations over the past 18 years. Since 2019, she has been a co-host on Equals, a podcast about hope in the fight against inequality. Nadia grew up in Muscat, Oman, and holds degrees in political science from the University of Toronto and York University. It is my honor and delight to welcome Nadia Dara to our platform. And whatever she says here is in her personal capacity. She's not here speaking for Oxfam. And nothing she says here should be construed or interpreted or in any way considered as an official statement of Oxfam. So we are here to just have a fireside chat with Nadia to share insights about her field experience and then draw lessons from those insights. Thank you, Nadia, for accepting to join us today. 
Thank you for having me. It's a it's a real pleasure to be here, um, and, and share some of you know the picture of things that we've been seeing come together over the past several years, but really coming to a fore with the COVID nineteen pandemic as we start thinking about what our world can look like um, when we when we emerge from this crisis. Um, and I want to start there. Really, is is thinking about in this extremely dark period that we're in. We're finding ourselves analyzing what got us here um, and saying we simply can't face this again. Uh, we look at our world, our societies, our economies, our governments. We look at our leaders uh, and we're trying to imagine a different world. We're daring to imagine a different world, uh, one where our economies care for their people, that, that value and reward work, not wealth. We imagine economies that protect their people and put them first, uh, that guarantee that women will get paid the same as the work that men do. They, we imagine economies with health systems that are strong and prepared for when we need them uh, to be there and that are free for all to access. And education systems that are resilient, adaptable, and universal. And we imagine that we've finally come together to say we need to protect our people and we need to protect our planet. We imagine this fairness, right? That's kind of what it all comes down to is we imagine this fairness uh, in our global economies and our societies. And we imagine human rights, universal human rights. And these are not new ideals. These are ideals that were imagined and agreed by governments around the world coming out of another crisis 75 years ago, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that was agreed after the Second World War. And in this dark moment, I guess sometimes we ask, our, we ask why, are, why are we imagining such a different world? Um, it's because the pandemic has really exposed the weaknesses, the failures in our systems. COVID hit this world and it was completely unprepared to fight for it because countries had simply failed to make the right policy choices going into this pandemic. Only one in six countries was spending enough on health. Only a third of the global workforce had adequate social protection. Um, in more than 100 countries, at least one in three workers had no labor protection, such as sick pay. And the result is that we saw death, we've seen destitution, and we've seen inequality increasing dramatically. And at the same time, we're imagining this different world because we're seeing an opportunity here. We're seeing an opportunity where policies are being changed and reconsidered. We're seeing health services being invested in, in a way, albeit in an emergency way, but in a way that we haven't seen. We're seeing increasing in cash transfers and social protection. We're hearing people talk about uh, the need for, for paid sick leave. We're seeing rules being waived and changed. Um, and it sparks an important reminder, and I'll come back to it later, but it reminds us that our rules of our economies that we live with, they're man-made. These are not rules of the universe, and what is made can be undone, and it can be changed. Um, the other reason we're here, sitting here and imagining this other world is that the pandemic has really made explicit the sheer inequalities that we live with, this unfairness that, that I was speaking about, that we're striving to overcome the fairness. 
um, where poverty is now increasing for the first time uh, in over 20 years. The world's richest individuals and corporations are thriving, meanwhile. So we see the thousand richest people on the planet having recouped their COVID-19 losses within just nine months. But we see that it could take more than a decade for the world's poorest to recover from the economic impacts of the pandemic. So we're still in an extremely difficult situation globally. Um, in the US now we hear that anyone over the age of 16 can sign up to receive a vaccine within five miles of their home. But we know that that is just simply not the case for most of the world. Um, in, in fact, for anywhere else in the world, many are at the worst situation that they have they're not in the eye of the storm. I know we are, are reading with despair the situation in India right now, for example, where the situation with the pandemic is worsening by the day. We've seen more than 200,000 people now die in this deadly second wave of, of COVID. Um, and it's the most vulnerable who are suffering. Uh, our teams there have actually deployed staff to the five worst hit provinces. Uh, where people are losing their lives because they can't access healthcare, they can't access oxygen, um, and the hospitals and health systems were simply, they're overwhelmed and, and they were unprepared for what they're seeing. Um, yesterday, I was completely taken aback to hear that in addition to uh, PPE, to oxygen, to cash and food supplies, our teams there are actually being asked, uh, it sounds wild, our teams are being asked to procure electric incinerators equipment to cope with the dead is as scarce and needed as equipment to help the living. Uh, so it's a devastating situation. And, and the economic situation, of course, is, is devastating as well. It's not just the health impacts of this pandemic. Lockdown and curfews are in place in India and other countries around the world, but the impacts economically just can't be underestimated, right? So where many of us, I, myself included, can work from home, quarantine and, and I can isolate when I need to, many of us can. Uh, for millions of others that are in the informal economy, they have no safety net to fall back on. They're wage laborers who rely on, uh, on their work on a daily basis to put food on the table. Uh, racially marginalized communities are living in intergenerational households and can't quarantine and isolate from, from, from other household members. They don't have that same privilege. Um, and economies are suffering tremendously. We're seeing revenues across lower income countries plummeting, tourism stalled, remittance flows, uh, that's the money sent home by migrant workers employed in foreign countries. These flows have, have fallen significantly and many countries from Tajikistan to Nepal to El Salvador depend on these flows. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw massive capital outflows of around $100 million come out of low and middle income countries, and much of that has yet to be recovered. So we're seeing countries struggling not just to beat this health crisis, but of course this economic crisis. Uh, and as a result, we're seeing governments make difficult and dangerous decisions. Uh, we're seeing, for example, two-thirds of lower-income countries have now slashed their education spending in order to fight this health pandemic and the economic impacts, um, and also to continue paying off their external debts, which I'll come to later. Um, and, and that's at the same time, while you know, half of the world's students are still affected by partial or full school closures. Um, and what's worse is that's going to have long-term impacts. We 
We think that over 11 million girls may never return to school because of these school closures, um, because of the risk of now they're at increased risk of early pregnancy, of violence, of, of forced marriage. Um, and really, you know, looking at the gendered impacts of this pandemic, it's really disproportionately women who have stepped in and stepped up to provide the additional care for children out of school, um, for sick family members. And millions of women in the formal and informal economy have lost their jobs during the pandemic um, or have been forced to leave jobs or reduce hours or, or take unpaid leave to manage those additional care responsibilities. Um, and I, I think it's fair to say that this pandemic has poured daylight onto how care work is the hidden engine that keeps our global economies going and our businesses and our societies. So this is where we are. The recession is over for the, for the richest, but hundreds of millions of people are underemployed and, and are sinking deeper into poverty. Women are hit hardest yet again. Um, inequality is costing lives. We know that uh, in, in poorer, in lower income neighborhoods, in lower income countries, the mortality rates are higher than in richer areas. So now the question is, how do we get from here to, to, from this crisis, from these system failures, these deepening inequalities, to that place that I was describing earlier at, at the beginning of a fair economy, one based on human rights and one that, that values and cares for people and the planet. Uh, it seems like a long, it seems like a big gulf between these two realities. But I would argue that we do have many of the tools available. And I would propose a few steps that could set us on that path. The first thing is that we need to stop this pandemic. That's the very first thing. Um, and we need universal access to free vaccines as quickly as possible and, and to treat COVID-19 vaccines as a global public good. Um, aside from the health, economic, and moral arguments, the, I mean, the fact that the longer it will take for vaccines to reach the world, the more likely it is that the virus is going to mutate and, and hence the vaccines would become less viable. Um, that's just one reason, aside from the moral argument that everyone should be able to access a vaccine now. Um, and we know that no one company will be able to produce enough vaccines for the whole world. So, so long as vaccine solutions are kept under lock and key um, and the, the intellectual property is kept under lock and key, there will not be enough vaccines manufactured and there will not be enough vaccines to go around the world. Right now, less than 2% of the 690 million COVID-19 vaccine doses administered have been in Africa. And on average in high income countries, we've seen one in four people get a vaccine, whereas in low income countries, it's one in more than 500. That's a huge difference. One in four versus one in 500. So these are unprecedented times. We need to overcome supply blockages, and that means overcoming intellectual properties uh, barriers and putting people, not big pharma, first. So you know, pharmaceutical companies should share the recipes, the know-how, biological material, technology behind their vaccines with other companies that can then manufacture them. And rich governments need to help to make that happen. They're blocking this from happening right now at the World Trade Organization. So we need to do better. The second thing we desperately need is financing. Low income and, and low middle income countries, um, actually this figure is just for low income countries, need around $450 billion to pay for the pandemic. 
for the costs associated with the pandemic over the next five years. And that's not even thinking about either policy, you know, what they'll need to invest in for a recovery or for a just transition and to invest in, in mitigation and adaptation strategies on climate change. It's not thinking about all of those amazing sustainable development goals we were talking about before this pandemic hit. Remember, I don't know if people remember those even right now, we're in such a new reality. Um, but before the pandemic, we were talking about financing the SDGs. Now we're talking about financing this pandemic, but yet we still need to fight and finance those, we still need to finance those SDGs. So governments need financing. They need fiscal space. They need the budget to make these investments. And the quickest way to ensure governments have these resources available in their budgets is to keep resources in those countries. So debt cancellation is key. Um, countries around the world are suffering as they continue to pay millions in debt payments to private creditors, to multilateral creditors like the World Bank. Um, so while the World Bank is continuing to give grants and loans to countries during the pandemic with one hand, on the other hand, they're actually collecting in debt payments every month from, from governments um, and also what they owe to bilateral official creditors. So just to give you an idea, even before the pandemic hit, uh, at least 64 countries were paying more in debt payments, external debt payments, than they were paying in health investments in their countries. So it's urgent that we're finding solutions to help get these debts canceled so governments can retain the budgets to make the investments they need to fight the pandemic and move to a swift and inclusive recovery. Aid money is another crucial way that rich governments can play their part in supporting low-income countries. Um, and that can be through bilateral means or multilateral means. Um, a third and, and really uh, crucial mechanism is something called special drawing rights. And this is an international reserve asset that the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, can issue when global reserves are low. And, and they did this after, uh, they did this in the heat of the last uh, financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Um, but with this crisis, the, the former Trump administration had actually been blocking this possibility for the past year. Um, but the new Biden administration is showing its support. And we have all the IMF shareholders now coming together and agreeing um, that, uh, that these special drawing rights are needed. And so the IMF, we can expect to inject around $650 billion worth of uh, special drawing rights, SDRs, and these are non-repayable resources. They'll be injecting those hopefully uh, into the global economy before the end of the summer. Um, and $21 billion worth of SDRs would go to low-income countries. So it's not, an, uh, it's not a, a small amount, um, but more is still needed. It's not enough. And so let me just talk about taxes because tax revenues are needed in the short term, they're needed in the medium term, and they're, they're needed in the long term, it's central. And there are some quick ways to do this right now. Um, excess profit taxes would be one very important way to secure revenues right now. These companies that have profited disproportionately during the pandemic, especially tech companies. Um, to give you an idea, a temporary tax on excess profits made by the 32 global corporations that have gained the most during the pandemic, that could have raised $104 billion in, in 2020. 
So, and just to, to think, what could we do with $104 billion? That would have provided enough unemployment benefits for all workers, uh, financial support for all children and elderly people in all low and middle income countries. So these are unexploited tax revenues that we need to be accessing. Um, uh, you know, Amazon is a classic example. Amazon uh, profits have more than tripled in the first quarter of 2021. So that that's a ripe, um, a ripe underexploited resource right there. Um, and this has been done before. It's not like this is a new idea. Uh, the U.S. has done this. Uh, Japan has done this. Germany and France have done this multiple times. The U.S. has actually done it multiple times in history, and at least three times that I'm aware of. Um, and aside from companies, there's solidarity taxes on wealth of individuals as well. Um, and this is something even the IMF has come out in favor of. So Argentina has uh, recently done this, for example, and it's they've instituted a one-off solidarity tax, um, which will help to pay for medical supplies, small and medium enterprises, um, education, social development. And they've basically said, we're going to tax. Uh, just a one-time tax of Argentina's 12,000 richest people. It's just 0.02% of the population. And it's people who have declared assets of uh, over $2.5 million. And they estimate they can raise $3.5 billion with this. That's, that's resources the governments can, can really benefit from right now. Um, but longer term, there's so many more opportunities for progressive taxation. Um, every OECD country except Chile has cut its corporate income tax rate since the year 2000, um, with, with big falls in Germany and Greece and Canada and Belgium. So there's a lot of unexploited uh, tax base here uh, when you look at wealth and corporations. Um, so this is not just because it can help uh, um, access revenues. It's also crucial to equalizing economies and societies. Uh, redistribution through taxation uh, is a crucial, a crucial thing to be doing. And it shows us that inequality is not inevitable. It's not a law of the universe. It's a result of policy choices. Um, so I guess my next point is to say that we need politicians to make those right policy choices, um, to make the choice to invest in, in public quality, universal health care and education, to invest in universal social protection systems that, that all can feel secure and safe, um, to enhance and improve labor rights and laws and care infrastructure, understanding, like we were talking about, that workers keep our economies going in the front, but it's unpaid and underpaid care workers who keep our economies going behind the scenes. Um, and these policies can be done. Uh, we've put out as Oxfam uh, uh, our commitment to reducing inequality index, which assesses 158 governments' policies on uh, reducing inequality, policies on taxation, on social spending, on, on health, education, and social protection, and on labor rights. Um, and we see many countries doing the right thing on certain policies. So we've seen South Korea increasing its minimum wage. Uh, Ethiopia stands out for spending a strong proportion of its budget on education. We've seen Costa Rica and Thailand uh, have universal health coverage. Bolivia has scaled up its social protection through higher taxes on oil and gas. So many are many can make these policy choices. 
Uh, and through the pandemic, we've seen the rise of fiscal policies that we have been wanting. Um, we've seen boosted investments in healthcare and social protection. As I said, we've been hearing a lot of discussions about paid sick leave, but many of these are temporary emergency policies rather than longer term commitments. And um, so we need these long-term commitments and, and evidence shows us that these are the types of policies, this public spending across health and education and social protection, this is how we, this is how we get to reduce those inequalities. Um, and when we don't make those investments, we risk increasing inequalities. We, we risk um, the false promise of privatized solutions. So you see public services not free at the point of use. And as a result, millions of people, uh, women disproportionately, being excluded from healthcare services. So uh, to give you an example, 100 million people worldwide are pushed into poverty because they have to pay out-of-pocket healthcare expenses. So we really need that free universal public uh, systems to be invested in. Uh, but we know that that doesn't just happen. Uh, we know that that takes political will. Um, and that's a key ingredient on the list to getting to a just recovery. Um, so rules can change, policies can change, but it takes political will. Uh, and we need leaders who are willing to break that cycle of catering to the elite, who won't allow the rich to write those rules. Um, you know, formulation and implementation of policies don't happen in a vacuum. They usually take place in areas where there are asymmetries of power. We see higher concentration of power, uh, which comes from wealth and other sources. Um, and then as a result of that, you see more elite and political capture and more uh, the elite writing the rules that govern our economies and societies. So in order to tackle political capture, you have to tackle inequality. But to tackle inequality, you also have to tackle capture. Um, and it kind of takes us back to that universal declaration of human rights where these rights are indivisible and, and interdependent. Um, this means that one set of rights really can't be enjoyed without the other and political and economic rights are, are intertwined. Um, but we also need governments to have the flexibility and support to make those policy choices. So we need institutions like the IMF, which I spend a lot of my day thinking about, to not just speak about inequality and the problems of inequality, um, but really help provide governments with the tools to address inequality rather than promoting policies that will increase inequality. So uh, promoting austerity and spending cuts we know will only worsen inequalities. Um, and right now we're very disturbed to see the IMF uh, promoting austerity across the board. We've seen our research has found that 93 out of the 109 IMF COVID-19 loans negotiated between March 2020 and 2021, when the uh, push for belt tightening and austerity measures uh, for when the crisis recedes. And these are measures that could, you know, create deep cuts in public health care and pension schemes, wage freezes, um, uh, unemployment benefits like sick pay. So we really need the IMF to be not doing that. Uh, we need to see them supporting governments to increase fiscal space through progressive tax measures uh, and to support them to increase spending in crucial areas. 
Um, my final point today is that we, we really need to fight to make this all happen. We need to fight for and demand these policies that will reduce inequality um, and that will ensure a just recovery. Um, we have to hold governments and corporations, donors and international institutions accountable. Um, so as civil society, as academics, as unions, as citizens, as students, as communities and activists, we all have a role to play. Um, and having the safe space and the civic rights to make these demands can't always be taken for granted. Not all communities have that right. Um, and they need, we need to, to, to fight for those rights to be there. We need to fight for a safe civic space uh, for, for people to, to make these demands. So I'll, I'll end there, but maybe just to recap, because I know I've spoken a lot, <laughs> the steps and conditions I think that can help set us on this path um, to a rights-based recovery uh, start with beating this pandemic through universal access to vaccines, ensuring financing is available to fight the pandemic and make the needed investments. Governments need to make the right policy choices uh, to reduce inequality, so taxation, social spending, labor protections. They need the political will to do so. They need the flexibility to do so and the support to do so. Um, and then we all need to demand that they do so. Um, wherever possible, we need to defend and protect that space that allows citizens to be engaged because inequality is not inevitable. Um, human rights are not out of our reach. They're not just ideals. They're something we can actually be striving towards and achieve. Um, and, but, and we shouldn't just imagine, we should demand this. So thank you. And thank you so much, Nadia, for really helping pull together sort of all of these different um, thought processes and, and things that have been going on in the world and making it tangible and succinct and really, I think, igniting a fire um, in so many of us who are listening here to really remember, you know, we're all in our room, sitting on Zoom, and, you know, we it, it can be very easy to forget that there is so much um, injustice and inequality in the world. And I think you've provided a lot of really great tangible approaches as to how we can fix that. Um, so I hope that everyone that is on this call or that will be listening to this call will really take those take those to heart and figure out how you can advocate for those in your work in you you know on the platforms that you have um, and we just want to thank you so much for being so genuine um and, and insightful with your work and, and really passionate about it and you know that's really what inspires a lot of us to keep going and um yeah and so we just you know we thank you so much and we we wish you the best and we really appreciate your time thank you tiffany and thank you, Julia Godinez. Uh, Julia is also a member of the editorial board. Uh, she's been fantastic putting things together. She's the, the managing editor. So all these logistics are coming from her desk. And uh, Chuma Iwanofu is unavoidably absent. He's also another member of the editorial board. And this year, we've been able to have uh, impressive conversations, impressive dialogues on public policy issues, coming from the desk of the Economic Policy Review. It's been my honor to work with this team, and it's been my honor to also host impressive, incredibly talented speakers uh, like Nadia Dar. Uh, Nadia, uh, I can't thank you enough uh, for responding to those uh, unwarranted emails and taking them calmly, taking them calmly and then uh, accepting to come speak with us. And you, you, there's no doubt you have inspired a lot of us to think about these things differently. 
uh, to think about what policy has to do with uh, public good and to think about the next person, not just the individual entity. Uh, perhaps in the fullness of time, we will say we have brought our own ideas to the entire puzzle of inequality, human rights, and public policy in this moment. And that's enough. That's enough for any generation to be able to accomplish. And I think we are thankful to everybody who came. Uh, we are thankful to those who joined us from very far distances, from Indonesia, from the Middle East, from India, uh, from wherever you are around the world listening to us. We are grateful that you find time to join us. And please uh, follow us on the social media as we'll be publishing this too, uh, to encourage people to think deeply about these concerns as we search for fairness and justice in our world. Uh, thank you, Nadia, and thank you, Oxfam, for having someone like Nadia to join us. Thank you, uh, and do have a wonderful time. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And if you would like to receive notifications for future podcasts and articles, please subscribe to our mailing list at cornellpolicyreview.com.